This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. Around 10 a.m. on Wednesday, February 26, 2014, Kevin Lau Chin To parked his car in the Sai Wan Ho neighborhood of Hong Kong. He didn't make it far before, suddenly, he was stabbed. Once in the back, twice in his legs. He never saw his attacker's face. Whoever it was, they fled the scene on the back of a motorbike driven by an accomplice. Mr. Lau had recently been let go as the chief editor of the Ming Pao newspaper. His dismissal sparked protests in Hong Kong from citizens who feared the Chinese Communist Party's suppression of the press. The attack was one in a string of assaults on Chinese journalists. A year prior, a car had been driven through the home of media executive Jimmy Lai. The culprits had left two presents in Lai's driveway, a machete, and an axe. Francis Moriarty, the head of the Press Freedom Committee, told reporters, Hong Kong's reputation as a free and international city will suffer if such crimes go unsolved and unpunished. But in the darkest corners of Hong Kong, freedom only means what the triads say it does. And you can't punish the men who break the law if they're also the ones enforcing it. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. 
This is our second and final episode on the Triads, a Chinese secret society that began in the Fujian province around 1761. It started as a means of survival and a way to rebel against the corruption of the Qing dynasty before becoming a criminal enterprise. Last week, we discussed the beginnings of secret societies in China and the circumstances that led to the formation of the Triads. We also took a deep dive into their bloody initiation rituals, their culture, and how being a part of the Triads was considered a crime punishable by death by the government. This week, we'll follow the Triads' expansion across the globe. From the 1800s to the 21st century, the Triads that raged against the political establishment were no more. Today, they are the government. At the turn of the 19th century, the Blood Brothers of the Triad Secret Society spread their influence from the Fujian province into the Guangdong province, then to Guangxi, Hunan, Yunnan, and Guizhou. You can think of a Chinese province like an American state, and each of these provinces are larger than Pennsylvania. In total, these six provinces cover more than 500,000 square miles. The success of their expansion can be attributed to two things, documentation and autonomy. Both of which may seem incongruous in one of the world's most dominant secret societies, but written accounts of their rituals, ceremonies, songs, oaths, and rules ensured the triads a uniformity and foundation that would otherwise have been difficult to achieve. And just because there was documentation doesn't mean that it was easy to get your hands on. You had to earn the right to start a new unit. The benefit of the triad's autonomous units, so to speak, was that they allowed for expansion without the risks of a more hierarchical structure. Think about it as a deck of 52 cards, with each card representing a unit of the triads. Now, build a house out of them. If you were to remove one of them, say, the Ten of Diamonds, it could cause the entire structure to collapse. Everything you built might come crashing down, just like that. Now take that same deck and spread all 52 cards across a room. Then take away the 10 of diamonds. What would happen? You'd be left with 51 cards, all right where they were intended to be. The autonomy of each new group actually added to the society's veil of secrecy. If you were a triad in Hunan province, you likely wouldn't know your Yunnan brethren if you passed them on the street. You might not even know there were triads in Yunnan at all. And there's power in that separation. If you were caught by the police, you would only have so many names to give, no matter how badly they tortured you, no matter how much money they offered. The survival of one unit or one individual didn't preclude the survival of the whole. Meanwhile, proper documentation meant that the triad's culture, ceremonies, oaths, and rituals remained consistent as each new unit cropped up. And because of that consistency, they were able to take advantage of their numbers. In travels to strange lands, triads could find fellow members using secret codes. If they raised three fingers towards the sky or pressed them against their chest, they might suddenly find themselves in the presence of another brother, someone who seconds earlier had been a complete stranger. And being a blood brother was a powerful thing. 
It meant protection, shelter, food, and knowledge wherever you went. It meant you were never alone. You were always bound to a secret society of men sworn to protect and support you at all costs, even death. Mutual aid. It's the lifeblood of the triads, one that started as a tenet of survival and became an order of business. In their earliest stages, the brothers of the triads set up underground structures as a means for rebellion and thievery, rallying against the corruption in their land, stealing to survive. But as the profits from their minor crimes increased, greed grabbed the triads by the throat, and the same underground structures that allowed the triads to rise up and take from the crooked officials translated seamlessly to other crimes like sex work, gambling, smuggling, and extortion. Soon enough, what began as the People's Secret Society, with mottos like Obey Heaven and Work Righteousness, became a self-serving criminal organization, more akin to the Mafia. This transition into the new age of triads didn't happen all at once. Many units still maintained their political ethos and activism, and not just as a cover for their crimes. They believed in their purpose. It was just that some units pushed their criminal ventures farther than others. And perhaps not so coincidentally, the rise of the triads in China paralleled the rise in the drug trade, more specifically, opium and narcotics. But the Blood Brothers weren't alone in their trafficking, not in the slightest. The British were coming. The colonization of Hong Kong has a complex and sordid history, but it begins with opium. By the mid-18th century, England's East India Company, or EIC, ruled the seas, and thus the trade routes of Southern Asia. They were what's known as a joint stock company, meaning that company stock could be bought and sold by shareholders. But what's most important for you to know is they were a private corporation. They were in no way a government organization. At the time the triads were forming in the Fujian province of China in 1762, the East India Company had colonized much of India, the world's largest producer of opium at the time. By 1773, just a decade later, the EIC was the largest importer of opium into China. As the margins from opium made the EIC rich, more countries started to chip away at Britain's monopoly in order to get their own piece of the pie. Who, when, or why doesn't matter so much. What matters is the effect it had on China. The influx of drugs was absolutely devastating to the country and its citizens. The Chinese government fought hard against the foreign profiteers, but their edicts and decrees never managed to slow or stop the drug trade. They even offered to buy the EIC's opium stores off the British, hoping that they would take the money, or in this case, tea and leave their country alone. But their offer was denied. So in 1839, China implemented a blockade of all foreign ships, preventing any unknown trade vessels from docking in their harbors. If any came close, Chinese officials would seize their goods by force. The EIC was so aghast that they called upon the English government to come to their aid. In other words, a joint stock company of illegal smugglers called on the Royal Navy for assistance to help them sell Class A narcotics in a foreign land. And 
the British government answered their plea. What ensued is known as the First Opium War. As with all wars, of course, it was fraught with bloodshed, but it ended in defeat for the Chinese. On August 29, 1842, the Treaty of Nanking was signed. It ceded control of Hong Kong to Britain's Queen Victoria in perpetuity. Later, it would be known by the Chinese as the first unequal treaty. What does all that have to do with the triads? Well, the British rule in Hong Kong was difficult for secret societies. The official story, as told by the British, was that the triads were a threat to the safety of Chinese citizens. But they were also one of the biggest threats to British business. In the coming decades, British rulers would try and snuff out the fire of the triads, banning secret societies, sex work, gambling, and illegal trade where they could. They implemented two ordinances, the Society's Ordinance and the Organized and Serious Crimes Ordinance, one in Singapore and the other in Hong Kong. Both essentially made participation in triad societies illegal. But when convenient, the British also called upon the triads to use their strength and their numbers in war. It was a complex and often tumultuous relationship, but luckily for the triads, they had strength in numbers. They were already spreading across the world. Their structure would outlast the British suppression. Not only would they never disappear, but they would soon rise with a vengeance. Coming up, the Shanghai Massacre of 1927. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the end of the 19th century, the triad spread across Asia and made their way into new continents. Foreign drug trafficking in China led to the Opium Wars, which in turn led to the Treaty of Nanking that ceded control of Hong Kong to Britain. Tensions mounted between the new colonial rule and the triad societies of centuries past. The details of the next 100 years are a bit murky. To some extent, trying to track the triads into and through the 20th century is an exercise in futility. Partly because as new units cropped up all over the world, their numbers skyrocketed. By 2000, the triads infiltrated Europe, Australia, Japan, South Africa, Latin America, Russia, the Philippines, Thailand, Canada, and the United States. At their peak, there may have been as many as 300 different triad groups and more than 500,000 triad members in Hong Kong alone literally a sixth of the city's population at the time. And considering women and children rarely, if ever, were allowed to participate, that means more than one in every three men living in Hong Kong. After Hong Kong, Taiwan was the largest home for the triads. 
But to contextualize these statistics, let's unpack what it really meant to be a triad, beginning with their name. As we discussed last episode, the word is a loose translation of the Chinese phrase San Ho Hui, or the Triple Union Society. The word itself was likely coined by the British to describe the descendants of the Tian Di Hoi secret society. And as we said, by the time the British colonized Hong Kong, those descendants had gone by a slew of different names. Triad was a classification for the many secret societies that shared a common culture, blood rituals, oaths, and codes, no matter how connected they actually were. One of their biggest unifiers until the turn of the century was their common purpose, their final and most important oath, number 36. I shall be loyal and faithful and shall endeavor to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming. Our common aim is to avenge our five ancestors. But in 1912, the Qing dynasty fell. The role that the triads played in their collapse can't exactly be defined. We know they were engaged in stirring up unrest and creating instability. Instability that weakened the Qing rule and allowed others, like the Revived China Society and the Nationalist Party of China, to stage uprisings. And members of the triads could have participated in both. In fact, they could have made up a large portion of each, but there's no way to know for sure. After the Qing dynasty collapsed, the triads were directionless. They had no more enemies to oppose. The only motivation left was mutual aid. And without a clear purpose, the glue that held the triads together likely started to come apart. Units may have become more distinct and separate. But that separation doesn't necessarily imply that the Brits' use of the word triads was inaccurate. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that most of these groups continued the same blood rituals and upheld the same oaths as their predecessors. They continued to impress loyalty on any brother who joined. The question is whether their allegiance continued to extend to all, most, or even any of the other triad groups. After all, if you were a part of the most profitable triad units in, say, New York, you might not feel inclined to assist your brethren from a smaller society in San Francisco. What's in it for you? Mm -hmm. Especially as your illegal businesses grew and you potentially saw each other as competitors. And we know that fractures like this existed. Many triad groups across the world were divided by ethnicity, dialect, and, of course, distance. Even groups that occupied the same cities became rivals. Most notably, the two largest triad groups in Hong Kong, the 14K and the Xinian. But it's nearly impossible to draw lines that either connect or divide the groups we know existed. Remember, their survival and their businesses depended on secrecy. There's only so much we can know about any given group. Even specialists have a hard time tracking the triads. For example, in 2011, Italian police in Prato began an investigation called China Truck. The operation was looking into a Chinese organization they believed preyed on trucking companies in China, and they did so by controlling the roads and extorting where they could. 
it took them seven years to infiltrate. And when they did, they realized that the group had control over trucking routes in France, Spain, and Germany as well, through, quote, affiliates. They were peddling drugs, selling fake merchandise, running sex work rings, and operating illegal gambling houses. In just one sting, the police arrested 33 men and seized goods that were worth millions of dollars. Italy's chief anti-mafia prosecutor, Federico Caffiero de Rawa, told reporters, it's quite unusual to be able to identify a complex Chinese mafia organization like this. And that's coming from the country that created the term mafia. In our research, we weren't able to find a name for the group that was caught, only its leader. It was headed by a man named Zheng Naizhong, a.k.a. the Black Man. Police did, however, note that the group's structure likely came from the eastern Chinese provinces of Zegong and Fujian, which means it was likely a triad. But who can say? Remember, punishment for ratting out your brothers or revealing any of the triad's secrets is death. As for the elements required to make any group an authentic triad, we're just going to use our best judgment. There's certainly no rubric. So in examining the triads through the 20th century, it's important to keep that context in mind. What little information we have about the triads as a whole is inevitably not going to apply to all the individual groups. And when we do speak about alleged triads as units, it's often nearly impossible to confirm their connection to the whole. So now that that's sorted, let's dive back into the triads journey into the modern age. After the collapse of the Qing dynasty in mainland China, the Chinese Nationalist Party rose to power. With it came what might have been the triad's first collaboration with an official government regime. And the result was, quite literally, a massacre. On April 12, 1927, the Chinese Nationalist Party took to the streets to purge Shanghai of what the party considered to be their greatest opponents, communists. They enlisted the assistance of criminal gangs, like the triad group known as the Green Gang, in order to help them. And the Green Gang obliged. 2,000 of its members helped slaughter the communists. Though an exact death toll isn't known, thousands of people were arrested and hundreds were executed, many of them publicly. Rivers of blood ran through the streets. Thousands of others went missing. Most likely, the Nationalist Party achieved the deal through a direct cash payment or by allowing the Green Gang to sell opium without consequence, or both. But maybe the triad stepped in to thank the regime whose predecessors helped overthrow their mortal enemies, the Qing. Maybe the triads hated communists too, but it seems unlikely. According to Lo T. Wing, a professor at City University of Hong Kong, the triads don't work for political ideology anymore. Individual triad members may have their own ideologies, but triads as a group, they only work for money. And there's plenty of evidence to support Lo's assessment of the triads as pure opportunists. 
1941, the British government in Hong Kong called upon the triads to help them fight off the invading Japanese during the Pacific Wars of World War II. The very same government that had tried to suppress the triads in Hong Kong now asked for their support. In a meeting on December 12, 1941, the British allegedly met with representatives from a number of different triad groups and offered 20,000 Hong Kong dollars for their support. In addition to the cash, they were offered protection and leeway for many of their criminal activities. The triads turned the offer down. It wasn't enough. The Brits then countered the offer and promised the triads they could name their price after the war, if they joined. So, they did. The fair-weather allegiances of the triads continued. In a decade, they'd be found working with the next regime to take control of the mainland, the Communist Party of China. The same party that they'd previously slaughtered in the streets of Shanghai. For the right price, the triads of the 21st century would work with anyone. And it doesn't hurt if they happen to have common enemies, like democracy and the press. Coming up, the triads and the Communist Party try to silence the media. Now, back to the story. In 1949, the Communist Party of China took over the mainland. At first, the triads and other criminal organizations experienced a crackdown that forced a mass migration into British-ruled Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, citizens' attitudes towards colonial rule were becoming increasingly hostile. The triads were able to capitalize on that sentiment and expand to numbers that they had never seen before. In fact, the triads took over an old military fort in defiance of Hong Kong law. Known as the Kowloon Walled City, it was a poor, densely populated area where 30,000 people lived in 300 buildings on seven acres of walled-in land. The Kowloon Walled City was so overrun with crime that it became ungoverned. For years, the British took a hands-off approach to the walled city and the triads thrived. Particularly the two groups that would become the most dominant triad organizations in Hong Kong, the 14K and the Xin Yan. Eventually, the Kowloon Walled City could no longer be ignored. And in the early 1900s, after countless police raids, an extensive eviction, and ultimately a demolition, Kowloon Walled City was converted into a park. The triads, of course, managed to survive, as they always have, though some actually left their life of crime behind and transitioned to legal institutions. According to an article in the New York Times, during the late 1960s and early 1970s, corruption among Hong Kong police officers and collusion with triads was common. By the 1980s and 90s, the veil of secrecy around the triads became the darkest it may have ever been. If the triads had the police and the press in their corner, who was going to report on their crimes? How can they ever be held accountable? Newspaper distribution in Hong Kong is closely connected with organized crime groups. That statement is from an article on the website IFEX. The About section of their website reads, 
each year through collaboration and innovation. IFEX members and the Secretariat find creative ways to defend and promote freedom of expression, strengthen the power of our network, and bring about real change. They publish news that is unable to reach broad audiences due to censorship or government regulations in certain countries. Most of their articles are published anonymously. Many of them end with calls to action and the proper channels to go through in order to reach someone who might be able to help bring about change. A particular article discusses a vicious assault on a Chinese journalist in Hong Kong. On May 15, 1996, reporter Liang Tinwei was in his office in Quarry Bay. He had just finished a press conference announcing the launch of a brand new tabloid, Surprise Weekly, when two men entered. They asked to speak to Liang. Liang ushered the men into a private conference room, and the door clicked shut behind them. What, if any, conversation happened is unknown. The next thing anyone in the office heard was screaming. A fellow journalist ran to see what was happening. When he opened the door, he was slashed by a knife. The two men who had come to speak to Liang sprinted from the room and out of the building. Liang was barely conscious inside. His left forearm had been cut off, along with both of his thumbs. Investigators later found two 17-inch knives discarded on the first floor of the office building. And violence against the press became more frequent. On September 8, 1998, a bomb went off in a police officer's vehicle in Macau. Journalists and reporters rushed to the aftermath, but the first explosion was just bait. When police and media crews got near, a second bomb was triggered. Ten bloody journalists and four policemen ran screaming from the scene, fearing another explosion. It may have been a warning to reporters there, stay in line with the Communist Party of China because the triads are out there. In 2013, a car was sent through media mogul Jimmy Lai's house. In 2014, journalist Kevin Lau Chinto was stabbed three times in broad daylight. An article written about the attack mentions that it came after several less serious attacks on journalists in Hong Kong, and just three days after a protest over concerns about press freedom in the territory. The collusion between the Communist Party and the triads is often discussed as fact, but all the evidence is circumstantial. Naturally, no journalist has gone so far as to prove that they've definitely been working together by presenting hard evidence. Honestly, who can blame them? An investigation could mean losing an arm or your life. And Hong Kong has become a hotbed for these crimes because of its unusual political history. In 1997, Hong Kong was transferred back to Chinese control under the stipulation that British freedoms, regulations, and systems stay intact until 2047. So Hong Kong belongs to China, but isn't obliged to actually follow communist law. And as you can imagine, China's leaders are not thrilled by that concept. To give just a small insight into the differences between Hong Kong and mainland China, 
Hong Kong is subject to much lower tax rates, free trade, and far less government interference. The triads are, in a way, the perfect tool to maintain the censorship that happens in the mainland without needing to implement official law. Anyone who crosses the communist government in Hong Kong could find themselves in the crosshairs of the triads. If history proves anything, the triads are likely being paid by the Communist Party to exert unofficial force. But the triads benefit from the censorship, because if the media fears them, they can continue to hide in plain sight. They can sleep easily, knowing that their activities won't be landing any front page. Not if the journalists want to keep their lives. And the thing about censorship, official or not, is that by its very nature, it's the absence of news. And the absence of anything is going to make it difficult to track or quantify. Which makes you wonder how much isn't being reported. But we don't have to wonder when violence is public enough to catch the attention of the international community. On October 3rd, 2014, pro-democracy protesters were occupying the Mong Kok neighborhood in Hong Kong. They were mostly students who felt their rights, the ones promised to them until the year 2047, were being infringed upon by the Chinese government. The day prior, officials had warned the protesters that there would be chaos if they continued to occupy the streets. And they delivered on that promise. As rain began to fall on the protesters, a few dozen male civilians stormed their camps. The men shoved, punched, and spit on the demonstrators and tore down their tents. And the police were slow to react. Some of the female protesters were groped and sexually harassed, while the police allegedly watched and did nothing. As the scene came to an end, the activists were bleeding and battered. One was taken away on a stretcher and hooked up to oxygen. According to an article in the New York Times, police confirmed that eight of the men involved with the attack had ties to the triads. And the incident bears a striking similarity to one that happened just recently when hundreds of pro-democracy activists gathered in Hong Kong to protest an extradition bill passed by legislators. And the bill is a big deal. In layman's terms, it grants Hong Kong officials the ability to transfer anyone to another country if they are wanted for a crime in that country. Legislators claim they needed to pass the bill quickly in order to deliver justice to a Hong Kong man who was wanted in Taiwan for the murder of his girlfriend. It sounded simple almost reasonable, but it was just the opposite. Pro-democracy supporters feared that the extradition bill would essentially legalize a criminal practice that was already happening, the abduction of Hong Kong citizens as a means to subject them to communist law. They were using the case of the man who murdered his girlfriend to hide their real motives. And they had every right to believe that was the case. In 2016, a bookseller named Lam Wing Ki was abducted by communist officials on the border between Hong Kong and the mainland and was locked in a cell. Despite having committed no crimes, Lam remained in that cell in solitary confinement for five months. Lam later commented to reporters on his experience, I could only look up to the sky. It can happen to you too. 
I want to tell the whole world Hong Kongers will not bow down to brute force. Communist officials allegedly wanted information from him. They wanted him to name the authors of books that were published anonymously. Why? They contained anti-communist sentiment. Similarly, in January 2017, billionaire Xiao Jinhua went missing from Hong Kong. It was later discovered that he was locked in a cell on mainland China. Not much is known about why or what happened. So when citizens of Hong Kong gathered to protest the extradition bill in the summer of 2019, protesters were fighting for their civil rights, and thousands upon thousands of people took to the streets. When night fell on July 21, 2019, dozens of men dressed in white and wearing surgical masks flooded a local subway terminal and began attacking protesters and members of the media. They were armed with iron bars, clubs, and poles. Were they the triads? As of the recording of this episode, these protests are still ongoing. So what are the triads now? Well, it depends which ones you're referring to. There are those out there that don't lead lives of crime. There are those that exclusively lead lives of crime. And we're sure there are those that fall into a gray area in between. But the triads that have become the muscle to the Communist Party of China are perhaps the ones that have fallen the farthest from their origins, from their humble beginnings, trying to survive an oppressive regime. They've become the oppressive regime that they once fought so hard against. They've become the silencers. China is currently one of the most censored countries on the planet. In 2019, 48 journalists were locked away in their prisons, more than any other country. And the extent of media censorship only grows worse every day. We opened our first episode with the suggestion that triads could be anywhere. They could be closer than you think. And that's true. There are hundreds of thousands of alleged triad members spread out all over the world. New York, Los Angeles, Hong Kong, London, Singapore, Amsterdam, San Francisco, Boston, Malaysia, Texas, Sydney. But like most criminal organizations and gangs, unless you yourself are living a life of crime, you probably won't cross their paths. The triads that you really have to be worried about are the ones in Hong Kong. They're the real threat. The ones setting a precedent for what can be accomplished in silence by cutting off access to the facts and objectivity. In the absence of truth, A government or any organization can control what you believe is real. They can create their own society and design it however they would like. A secret society that you may not even know you're a part of.
Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the triads, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Origins of the Tiandi Hoi by D.N. Murray extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.